Hi, everybody. Welcome to church. It's great to have you with us. My name is Ashley Matthews. I'm the associate lead pastor here at Trinity. Uh, and this week is our final uh, pre-recorded Sunday service video. And so there are a couple of things that I want to say about that. Firstly, we want to say thank you to our crew who's been working here with us behind the scenes to make these videos possible every week. They have done an incredible job. And for those of you who've been watching with us from the beginning, uh, you are able to see the evidence of their hard work and their skills and their gifts. We are incredibly thankful for them. We want to bless them and thank them for their work. And then secondly, we want to say to all of you who've been worshiping with us from home that we realize that some of you may not yet be ready or able to come back to church and worship with us in person. And we just want to tell you that's okay. We get it. So long as masks are still required and variants are on the loose, uh, we are going to do everything we can to make church available to you. So here's what that's going to look like. For those of you who still want to worship from home. You're going to have access to a live stream of our 11 a.m. service. You can access the service the same way that you've been accessing these videos through our website or through Vimeo or YouTube. In the same way that you've been watching church, you'll be able to continue to uh, sort of watch church, except this will be our actual live service, what's happening in the building. And so we want to make that available to you for now, as long as we need to, so that you can still be a part of what's happening here in the life of our church. That being said, we do hope to see you back at church very soon. Bring your masks, uh, come if you need to, and sit in a socially distant space, either in our chapel or in the section we've re reserved for socially distant seating. Uh, either way, we hope to have you back here with us uh, in person very soon. All right, if you have Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 6. We're going to read, and then we'll pray. See what the Lord has for us. This is John chapter 6. We'll start reading in verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Holy Spirit, for these words of Jesus... God, it's strange and foreign to so many of us as they may feel and seem to read. We give you thanks for them. Where we choose to trust and believe that you are at work in them, even now and for us. That you have something to say to us through these words of Jesus in the same way, Lord, that you had something to say to the people who stood in front of you the day that you said them first. And so I ask you, Holy Spirit, will you help us to hear the Lord? Will you, God, be for us both comforter, our good shepherd, and also, Lord, our 
like wild-eyed prophet, the one who speaks word of truth over us. Unsettle us, Lord, if we need to be unsettled. And God, give us hope and peace that you will not only resettle us, Lord, but make us new, give us what we need. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. What a wild uh, few verses of the Bible. It's one of those that uh, is even, you, you feel sort of the strangeness of Jesus' words even as we read them. I'm immediately struck by the fact that we've been here now in John 6 for several weeks in a row. That at a time in the world where we all, in varying degrees, feel really weary and worn out. Um, some of us just downright exhausted spiritually and in other ways, that we've been called to sit with these words of Jesus from John 6 over and over, Jesus reassuring us in different ways that God's desire is to nourish us, to feed us, all for the sake, of course, of strengthening us, giving us what we need to get through something that's hard. That's why we eat, so that we have the strength that we need. And so I hear that reassurance coming from the Lord. I feel it as I sit with these words, even as difficult to understand maybe as they can seem on the surface. When I sit with these verses in particular, there are three, three highlights that I sort of hear Jesus raising to the surface, three features of the Christian life that I think that he's making for us. And I want to name them for you, and then we're going to look at them in turn. These, these three things. The first sort of a feature or essential feature of Christian life that I hear Jesus pointing towards is costly obedience. The second is redemptive pain. And the third is communion. And I want to talk about each of these things for just a moment. Uh, this is without a doubt, I, I know without having had to be there, that one of the most sort of bizarre and challenging moments the disciples likely ever had with Jesus and they went through a lot with him. They saw a lot of pretty crazy stuff. I mean, they saw Jesus cast out demons. They saw him heal lepers. Um, they saw him go up the Mount of Transfiguration and watched his face shine with the glory of God. The disciples experienced a lot of strange things with Jesus. And yet I know, without having had to be there, that this was one of the most strange for them, the most challenging. And we know that because if you keep reading a few verses later, you actually hear that a lot of people chose, as a, re as a result of what Jesus said, to walk away to leave. And even those who stayed with him, like Peter, James, and John, even those guys thought about walking away. And that's because what he was saying sounded to them insane, actually crazy. You know, it's easy for us to hear Jesus say these things. And of course, what comes to mind for us is communion. Jesus is talking about um, his death and the meal that he will give us as a result of that. We can see all those things in hindsight, but you have to recognize that for them, that was not the case at all. They couldn't foresee his death and resurrection. They couldn't foresee the Last Supper. And so that's not what they have in their minds. And furthermore, for Jews, um, the idea of eating flesh, human flesh in particular, and drinking blood was not just like crazy. It was actually anathema. It would have been, to them, sounding uh, heretical. The law of Moses forbade it. They weren't allowed to, to drink blood and eat flesh. And Jesus, of course, knew those things. So for a Jewish rabbi to stand up and invite his followers to drink his blood would be something like 
uh, I don't know, a medical doctor uh, standing up in the hospital lobby and saying suddenly out of nowhere that they don't believe in vaccines or vaccines are bad for you. It was just so jarring and really hard for people to wrap their minds around. Almost like Jesus was intentionally trying to push their buttons and even call them into something embarrassing. And that's what stands out to me, is I think Jesus was being intentionally provocative. So the question is why? Why would Jesus feel the need to provoke, to push buttons, even to embarrass? And I think one of the reasons is because Jesus is trying to say that inevitably there are going to be times, if you choose to follow him, where he is going to call you to engage with costly acts of obedience, that there will be times in your life where because of Jesus, you will be asked to like violate social and cultural norms, expectations that the world places on you, things that you're taught to believe are normal and right and good and true, and the expectations that other people have of you, that there will inevitably be for every Christian who follows Jesus on purpose, a time when Jesus asks you to step into something costly, provocative, maybe even embarrassing. And I actually think there's a great deal of grace in being reminded that that's true. Because otherwise it catches us off guard. And please hear me. I actually don't think it's very helpful for Christians to go around purposefully or otherwise doing crazy things. Um, That's not a blessing to anybody. I do, however, think that inevitably, if we're doing things right, if we're following Jesus the way that we're called to, There will be times when we will inevitably be asked to come out and be separate. That's Paul's language. Where our faith will set us apart in meaningful, noticeable, and sometimes costly ways. That was true for Christians in the first century. Um, A little bit of history. I mean, Jesus was talking to people who would experience this firsthand in just a few years. So he's actually giving them a kind of warning about what's going to happen. After Jesus' death and resurrection... As the church started to come together and Christians became a thing, um, there were rumors about them. They had a reputation. So according to their pagan critics, the rumors, the reputation that Christians had was this. People referred to Christians as sort of incestuous cannibals who practiced magic. This was a really widespread and sort of common rumor, something that people, a lot of people said and believed to be true about Christians. They were incestuous, they were cannibals, and they practiced magic. Now, that sounds insane um, for us, but you have to understand why it is that people said that. And I think it matters for us. Here's why they had that reputation. They were accused of being incestuous because people heard and knew that they referred to each other as brother and sister. They saw Christians creating this new family, that people were walking away from their pagan uh, families and faiths and coming together to create this new family, and so they would refer to one another as brother and sister. And then they would sometimes marry those same brothers and sisters. They were creating new families out of that family, and so the accusation was that's incest. If they're your brother and sister and you marry them, you know, you've committed incest which of course was not true, but it was the accusation. Similarly, with cannibalism, the reason that uh, people accuse Christians of being cannibals is because they knew that they got together and they had these like agape feasts, that they would come together for worship, 
that they would invoke the words of Jesus who said, take my flesh and eat of it, take my blood and drink it. And they knew that's what was happening in these gatherings when they came together for worship. And so they accused them of being cannibals if you're eating his flesh and drinking his blood. It's cannibalism. Similarly, they believed that, um, well, they knew that Christians were known for these powerful supernatural acts. People were getting healed. The blind could see, the lame were walk, could walk, these impossible things to explain otherwise. And so what they accused them of was magic. These are the magical arts. You're practicing uh, magic. That's the only explanation, which of course wasn't true. It was what people were, things they were doing by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's why I think it's important for us just to know that that is our history, that for the church, for early Christians, that was their experience. Their everyday common practices of worship, of loving each other, and of faith set them apart in really costly ways. They didn't have to do anything crazy. They didn't have to picket things or boycott Disney or whatever our own cultural version of that might be, send their kids to private school. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was simply the way that they worshiped, the way that they loved each other, and their acts of faith. And so the question then that I get to ask myself is, is there an invitation for me to practice costly obedience in the way that I worship, in the way that I love people, and in my faith, what I believe, here's what I mean. Does the way that I worship set me apart, like culturally and socially, in any way? Because our culture would have us to believe that, you know, we don't have to be set apart. That really, actually, you can do all the things you need to do as a Christian, and God just wants you to be good and be happy, and it can all really work together. And to some degree, thank God living in this country, that's true. But there are other ways in which it is not true. For example, the practice of Sabbath, which is an act of worship, if we were really doing it, y'all, would cost us something. Sabbath-keeping, which is about like God-honoring worship, resting as an act of worship, an acknowledgement that God made me and God keeps me alone. Money can't do that. My job can't do that. Stuff can't do that. Only God can. If I'll stop and take space, I'll feel it. Because the temptation to keep working or doing or buying or shopping, all the things we're supposed to resist and say no to when we Sabbath, we feel those as costs. Similarly, in the way that we love people, and Christians specifically, are we supposed to love all of our neighbors? Yes, of course. But there is this interesting call in the Bible to pay attention particularly to the way that we treat other Christians and our love for one another. And here's why. I think because what was happening in the first century is proof of this. If we love each other really well, it sort of speaks for itself. Other people feel and benefit from and see that love and want to be a part of it. So the question for me is, am I making space for other Christians in the way that I'm called to, to love them and care for them, to pray for them and serve them? It's an important question to ask. Similarly, with faith, we can have a very private faith and a safe faith, but what I hear Jesus challenging me and us by extension is to consider, like, when was the last time that your faith prompted you to pray for something costly or that could be costly if God didn't provide? Have we prayed really specific prayers of faith for God to move and do something, for God to heal somebody who 
uh, we fear won't otherwise be healed, for the Holy Spirit to come and provide for something that we can't have apart from him. And if you no longer pray those kinds of prayers, I just want you to hear the Lord saying he's noticed and he's calling you to practice costly obedience, to allow him to stretch your faith so that you can regain your confidence in how you pray and how you work with the Spirit. All right, so we're going to consider the way that we worship, the way we love people and our acts of faith. Acknowledging that like costly obedience is part of this thing with Jesus. It's a requirement. These other two things that I want to mention quickly are not requirements, but rather they're gifts or assurances. So costly obedience is something that's required of me. But redemptive pain and communion are both promises, assurances of things that God is going to do for me, for us. So quickly, I want to think about a redemptive pain together. Whether they understood it or not, Jesus was, of course, talking about his death and communion. You know, he was saying, my body is quite literally going to be broken. And as a result of that brokenness, you are going to have life. Something really good and redemptive was going to come out of the pain that Jesus was going to experience. And so what I hear in that is an acknowledgement, y'all, that pain is going to happen. It just is. It was a part of Jesus' life, and it is going to be a part of my life, Christian or non-Christian. The facts are we live in a broken world, and pain is a part of that uh, reality. It comes. The only question is how we go through it and what comes out of it. And this is really important. Jesus did not promise us or assure us that we could avoid pain all the time. Some of it, yes, but not all of it. Inevitably, we are, in fact, going to have to pass through it at some point. What he does promise is that as we pass through it, if we'll invite him into the struggle with us, then he will be at work in it, doing something redemptive and good. So pain always happens, but it's not always purposeful. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes we go through really hard things and the best we can hope for is just like we survive it and get through it. We just want it to be over. A lot of us are going through this pandemic that way. We're just like trying to survive it, outlive it, hope that it just eventually goes away. And I get it. I feel that we all do. But I wonder if there isn't a gracious invitation from the Lord to say, what if you invited me into the struggle today to ask what like redemptive good Lord could come out of this pain? What purpose is there in it? Not just for me, but for the world around me. Your purposes. Sometimes we get to see those. We know what they are, either immediately or it takes a long time, and we can look back and be like, man, that was really hard, but I saw God do this thing. And sometimes we don't. But the promise is there for the Christian passing through pain if we invite Jesus into it, what he's saying is, my body, take my body, take my pain, and let it produce good, something redemptive, true. There's an invitation, I think, for some of us, uh, not just individually, but maybe all of us corporately. And then here's the last thing I want to say. Communion. I think Jesus is talking about communion. He's talking about costly obedience and in indirect ways. He's talking about redemptive pain. And I think he's talking about communion. I woke up this morning uh, 
early. And the very first words that came into my brain when I woke up were these. Uh, we are made for communion. And I just sort of kept running it through my mind. It was one of those thoughts that wouldn't leave me all morning. Has been up until now. We are made for communion. And I, I wonder, you know, for the disciples, of course, um, they couldn't hear that Jesus, couldn't know that Jesus was talking about, the, about communion, either the actual meal or how it would symbolize our faith. But uh, he was. And so I want us to think together about it for just a moment. And that idea that we were made for it, are made for communion. This meal that we celebrate every week is, of course, a symbol. It's meant to symbolize this life of faith that we live with God. And it's an important symbol. It's not just a symbol. Arguably, nothing is just a symbol. It's the symbol Jesus gave us because it teaches us some really important things that we cannot afford to forget. And I think that's especially true right now. Here are some of those things. I don't think you and I can right now afford to forget that God loves us and wants to be at a table with us. That he actually does intend to provide for us. That's a promise that he's made. That's something that I need to be reminded of, particularly in times like these, that that's true. I also need to be reminded that all of you, those with whom I celebrate communion, because I really can't do it by myself, something we do together, that's a feast, that's a meal, we eat it with other people. I need to be reminded that you who celebrate communion with me, you are not my enemies you are not my competitors. You are not those who contend against me or make life hard for me. You're not my superiors. When we are invited to the come to the communion table, we are invited to remember that we come as brothers and sisters. That maybe even more importantly, that you are coming to the table because you were created in the image of God and you are someone worth God dying for. So communion reminds me that that's true. Reminds me who God is, and it reminds me who you are. And I think that does something really powerful to bind us together, something that we really need y'all right now. I became an Anglican a number of years ago because I got to a place in my life where I felt like I didn't have the energy to pray on my own anymore. And like I didn't really have the energy to feel much of anything anymore. So I would come to church and I just couldn't feel anything. And that's really um, a hopeless feeling, particularly if you're in a tradition in which um, a lot of expectation is placed on your feelings. And I remember coming to Anglican worship services and having the prayers written out so that I could pray them. And it was such a gift because I didn't have to try to come up with things to say. It was just there. And then I was invited to come to the table every week as a reminder that regardless of how I felt, God was still doing something. He was still holy. He was still good. And that there was a mystery that I was being invited into I didn't have any control over. And those things were so important for me at the time. I think they're important for us now. now we need to be reminded of holy things right now. And be called to tend to them because so little in our world feels sacred anymore.
Do you know what I mean? We leave our families, the people we promise to love until we die. We abort babies and fill the oceans with plastic, sacred things. And our world does it without question. Everything is ours for the taking. And communion sort of pushes back on all that and says to me, it's actually not true. These things belong to God and they're holy, they're sacred to Him, and they're worthy of our reverence. And they invite us into something really powerfully good and true. We are not made for conflict. We're made for communion. We are not made for contempt. Even though we feel it from time to time and the world is full of it, we are made for communion. We are not made for competition, even though we compete and we have to from time to time. Communion invites me out of the conflict, the contempt, and the competition, and just invites me to like remember what I'm made for is communion. With God, with you. And so there's something really powerfully healing and restorative that happens at God's table. So here's my exhortation. If you are able, this is about to rhyme. If you're able, you need to get thyself to God's table. You do. If you can't get to a church, to a table, create your own, a space for holiness, to be reminded about who God is and who you are. I want to give you just a couple of questions for reflection before we pray. Here's the first one. Consider your, your Sabbath practice, your way of loving others, and your acts of faith. Where do you sense God inviting you into costly obedience in each of those ways? And then secondly, are you experiencing communion do you feel like you commune with and abide with God? Do you feel like you're able right now to commune with and abide with other people? And if the answer is no, then you have an invitation from Jesus to ask why, where is it coming from? And can you hear him say he intends to, wants to, has promised to heal it, fix it, make it otherwise? He will. Amen. Uh, let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
Amen. God bless you guys. We hope to see you at church very soon.